A case that is currently unfolding that has not only gripped the nation, but has led to so many more pivotal questions. This is a case that when I say you won't believe it, trust me, you will not believe it. I delved into it briefly on my TikTok account a few weeks ago, and well, that video kind of went viral. And so I'm here to give you the lowdown. The latest info, the things you haven't heard, the history, and of course, the perspective to understand it all. So strap in and get ready for a bumpy ride. This is the shocking case of Tabor Bester. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. A life of poverty, abuse, misery, and assault. This is the narrative that Tabo Bester would later share about his circumstances growing up. He would claim in court in later years that he had never seen his parents growing up and that he was also raped by his grandmother's friend, which resulted in him having to have an operation in his nether region. He also stated that his situation at home became worse after his grandmother died and that he was forced to go and live with his friends in a squatter camp. There again, he was allegedly sexually assaulted by a man who locked him in his home for days, sexually exploiting him. Tabo would rationalize that it was these difficulties that led him to a life of crime. But like many of the other things he has said in his lifetime, it now appears to the onlooker that parts of his story may just be another lie. The truth, however, is that Tabo Bester was born on the 13th of June, 1987, in his grandparents' home. His mother, Maria Macy Mabaso, was only 16 years old when she was allegedly raped and thus fell pregnant with him. According to an interview that was recently held with her, she had been on her way home from work and missed her bus, when whom she believed to be a kind stranger offered herself and her cousin a lift home. It is unclear where her cousin was during this assault, but before she was left in the road by her home, this man grabbed her and raped her. She would fall pregnant and later she would give birth to his child, her first baby. She named him Tabo and he took on his grandfather's surname, Besta. It is not known for certain, but it is alleged by those living in the community that his father was a local shopkeeper. Maria kept Tabo for just over a year, taking him often to visit her parents as there were other young children in the area there. At the time, she was working as a domestic worker in the Free State. Her relationship with her mother over the months declined. It reached a point where her parents requested that she leave the baby with them, as they felt that they could look after him with greater ease as well as give him a stable environment to grow up in. And so that's what she did. In the months that followed, she did visit Tabo as often as she was financially able to. However, as the relationship hit rock bottom with her mother, she stopped visiting altogether. During this time, Tabo grew up on a farm, living in the workers' quarters of the Ferreira household, with both his grandmother, Johanna, and grandfather, Abel. Johanna had been working as a domestic and child carer for the Ferreira family for over 40 years, and Abel also ended up working for them too. The couple led a relatively quiet life and, according to their employers, did not drink excessively or very often opting only for a few drinks over the weekend like many other individuals. The Ferreras trusted both of them implicitly, and so when Tabo joined the family, he was often raised alongside the Ferreira children. He was also allegedly brought into the world by the helping hands of one of the Ferreira family members. And this was life for him growing up. An account from one woman about Tabo at the age of four years old particularly stood out for me during my research though. The Lowe's lived in Kibler Park and Mrs. Lowe, a businesswoman, would later recount how she met Tabo when he was four years old and living in Eichenhof with his grandparents. One afternoon there was a knock on her door and she opened only to be greeted by an older man with a younger boy. The man, who she later found out was the boy's grandfather, asked her if she had given the little boy any money. She responded no 
And then he explained it was because he found a large sum of money on the child. And when he had asked him about it, the child had pointed to the Lowe's home and said that she had given it to him. Now, I'm not really sure where that money ever came from, but it is clear that apparently Tabo's stories were starting at an early age. Now, the thing is, Tabo would eventually spend a lot of time in the Lowe household. Mrs. Lowe would buy him tracksuits, pay for his travel expenses, and really go out of her way to help him. He would even appeal at a later stage for the couple to adopt him. But on that day in particular, the Lowe's most certainly did not give him the money. And as Tabo grew older, he was always finding himself in trouble or mischief in one way or the other. Just a year later, he was confronted by a local Shabin owner after he admitted to stealing a glass jar of coins from the family whom his grandparents worked for, the Ferreras. And at just five years old, this would be just the beginning of a life full of crime and theft, amongst other things. And so he grew up in Eichenhof, where those around him who grew up with him would later state that although he was not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, he had enough resources available to him to not be considered to be living in poverty. Over the years, it is said that he would hurt so many friends and family members with his lies and criminal behavior. His teachers would later describe him as a smooth talker and further stated that they had not heard any claims of him being abused as a child. None of the individuals who came forward to give their statements elected to be publicly named, and you will see why as the episode progresses. At the age of 12, Tabo's grandmother fell ill and she would later pass away. When she did, Tabo had left the family home to fulfill his own desires. His biological mother had no idea where he had gone. Perhaps at this point we can venture that his part of the narrative about living in the squatter camps may be accurate. But due to the lack of information available, over the next five years we cannot be certain what Tabo was getting up to. Described as charming, a smooth talker and quick-witted, Tabo's childhood misdemeanors would soon escalate with disastrous and deadly ramifications. Fraud and theft were the names of the games he played. His soon-to-be default method of recruiting victims involved him using social media to pose as an international modeling scout, setting up meetings with young women across the country. When he met up with them, however, often in fancy hotels with no concern of being caught on CCTV camera footage, he would proceed to rape them and then rob them. Later, due to this recruitment method, he would receive his moniker as the Facebook Rapist. In order to better understand this narrative and the crime spree that Tabo Bester went on, I need to employ the use of a timeline. The twists and the turns in this case are actually quite unbelievable, so using the this will help us both stay on track. We start with 2004. The Lowe family would last recall seeing Tabo around 2004 when he was about 17 years old. The following year, he would father his first child, a daughter. There are patchy accounts between this period and 2009 of what exactly he was up to, but I can tell you with great certainty that it most probably was not legal. And I'm about to also tell you why I know that. His actions over the next months and years would later result in him being found guilty of fraud in 2009 after falsely posing as a media executive recruiting models onto a bogus show. After his arrest in Johannesburg, he was sentenced to to six months in jail or the option of paying a 1,500 rand fine. He apparently did not have the funds available to pay the fine and thus he had to serve the time. He would later state that he was treated badly in prison because the prison officials believed that he was from a wealthy family. He would also go on to allege that he was assaulted and gang raped in prison with a foreign object being inserted into him. A report about this prison abuse was presented in court, but in that there was no mention of the sexual assault. After his release, Tabo went back to his underhanded ways, but this time he raised the stakes. Amongst all the things he got up to in 2010, from running a promotions and events agency to many less than savory practices, he also became a father 
for the second time. The mother was a different woman though. And this brings us to December of 2010. To illustrate just how smooth of a talker he was, think Tinder Swindler, he managed to con two unsuspecting airline charter companies into giving him free flight packages that were worth more than 500,000 rand in total. Yes, I just said half a million rand. The flights were chartered from Lanseria to Cape Town. The first one was in December of 2010, where a Beechcraft 1900 from National Airways Corporation was hired to fly him and 16 people to Cape Town for a couple of nights. The account manager of the airline believed that Tabo Bester was a trendy rich kid with money to blow. He was only 23 years old at the time, mind you. He signed all of the documentation and allegedly produced a fake banking transfer slip for 270 25,000 rand. However, after the money never appeared, the return trip was cancelled. In 2010 and 2011, the police who were hot on his tracks believed that Tabo was stealing two to three laptops a day. In addition to running other scams where he was asking women to pay him for auditions, as well as setting up elaborate photo shoots and making off with the staff and models' possessions. As 2011 progressed, Tabo was running multiple cons and going by up to 13 different aliases. On one occasion, he rented two buses and hired a photographic crew for a shoot. He managed to convince them to leave all their equipment in the buses and then go to lunch. He told them that he would be fully responsible for everything left in the vehicle. And just like that, poof! Hundreds of thousands of rands of equipment was gone in a flash. During this time, his Facebook profile stated that he had attended school in the free state. However, he was living between Cape Town and California, with his hometown being France. He also claimed to be an executive producer at SABC3. This particular alias was known as Thomas Kelly Bester. And it was later that year, when he was around 24 years old, that he arrived back at the front door of the Lowe's property. This time, however, he was asking them for assistance on how to obtain an ID document. At this point in time, the couple, or at least Mr. Lowe, had had enough, and he told Tabo he would not be able to assist him. And that would be the last they would hear from him, until of course they saw him on the news. During 2011, Tabo would also have yet another child, another daughter, with another woman. But soon the law caught up to him and in March of 2011 he was found guilty once again for fraud and given a two-year sentence which was then suspended for five years. Unperturbed at being caught yet again as well as being handed down a suspended sentence, he continued on with his modus operandi, approaching young women from across the country online and luring them into meeting in person. And like someone who is incredibly confident in their scamming abilities, he was back to conning private airline charters again in July of 2011. He leased a private jet from Fortune Air to fly four models from Lanseria to Cape Town. The jet also made a stopover in Durban to pick up Tabo and another woman. The return flight was cancelled, however, after the charter realized that the internet transfer was fake. The company ended up losing 300,000 rand as the flight and accommodation was booked as a package. In August of 2011, he was back again in Durban, where he would later rape, assault and rob two women that we know of at least. In later accounts, he would highlight how he was driven by lust to rape these women, even though his initial intention was just to rob them. His first known victim had responded to an advert looking for a presenter and model that he had posted on the FHM website the month prior. He lured this woman to a fake photo shoot with the intention of stealing her phone and laptop. But this con was incredibly intimate due to the fact that on the 19th of August he travelled with the woman from Johannesburg to Durban, roughly a six hour drive in her vehicle. After they had both checked into the Umschlange Hotel, she got into the shower. During this time, Tabo had walked across to the nearby Gateway shopping centre and he had purchased a kitchen knife and duct tape. Upon returning, he had pointed the knife at her and a tussle had ensued. They were both stabbed during the tug of war for the weapon. Tabo, however, got the upper hand and then he tied her up with duct tape. After he had successfully robbed her, instead of just leaving with her possessions, he would later claim that he saw her legs and was thus tempted by lust, which resulted in him raping her. Allegedly, then, he fled to a hotel by the Durban Point waterfront area. 
And it was only days later when he met another woman who was introduced to him by his girlfriend. Yes, you heard me correctly, girlfriend. But more on that very shortly. He decided that he wanted to rob the second woman. And so he had booked a flight back to Johannesburg for his girlfriend who was now in Durban with him and he had decided to stay on. His goal was to spend some time with this new woman. The pair went to a guest house in Westville, visited the pavilion shopping center for dinner, and after sharing a kiss, they were allegedly intimate that evening. The following morning, however, he held her at knife point before raping her and then fleeing with her credit cards, watch, cell phone, and cash. His record of theft, rape, and assault would soon escalate in a deadly way, though. So, remember I just mentioned his girlfriend? Well, in January of 2011, Tabo met Numfundo Tahulu at a BMW dealership in Santon, Johannesburg, after she sold him a new vehicle. Tabo met Numfundo Tahulu at a BMW dealership in Santon, Johannesburg, after she sold him a new vehicle. By March of that year, they were in a long-distance relationship, and Tabo would later state that not only was she a good friend, but he also knew her family. She was also the only one to stand by him when he was accused of committing various crimes in Durban. The pair also traveled around the country together on various occasions. During one such trip, however, when the pair flew to Cape Town in September of 2011, everything would change. On the 21st of September 2011, the pair apparently became embroiled in an argument while staying at a bed and breakfast in Sunset Beach. Although Tabo would later state that it was not his intention, Numfundo was stabbed in the chest and left for dead. She was only 24 years old at the time. Tabo then told the reception not to disturb the unit as his partner was sleeping in late before he fled with her laptop and her phone. He didn't realize, however, that the authorities were on his heels, not for that crime just yet, but for his many others, and they were waiting to make an arrest. At this point in time, Tabo was using over 13 different aliases, from Tabo, Magagula, TK, Rufus Mahopa, Kelly Young, Tom Kelly, Thomas Kelly Bester, and more. But he was quite prolific and active on Facebook, which made his trail easier to follow, for the Hawks at least. And so, in October of 2011, he was arrested and appeared in a Durban court on charges involving the rape and robbery of two different women at two different lodges in Durban in August. He would plead guilty to the four charges. The magistrate, Sharon Marks, gave him 15 years for each of the two counts of rape and another 15 years with five years suspended for each of the two counts of armed robbery with aggravating circumstances. He was 24 years old at the time. During mitigation of sentence arguments, he would showcase the narrative of his sordid and sad past, which ultimately in his eyes led to his life of crime. In his own words, he would say, I resorted to crime to support myself. It's either you die or make a plan. Prior to him pleading guilty, he was also visited by renowned forensic psychologist Gerard Labishkachny. I have some interesting snippets from that conversation as well as some very interesting insights, which I'll be sharing very soon. As many would soon discover, however, and as I discussed earlier, his version of events was not exactly all the truth, though. But he even went as far as claiming that he just wanted a second chance to do better. He went on to state, I know I have done terrible things. This is not truly who I am. I want the opportunity to put things right. Although he broke down in tears and pleaded for leniency, the magistrate found that there was no compelling circumstances to warrant a reduction in sentence. She agreed that the evidence showed that he planned his crimes and did not appear to demonstrate remorse, only regret. His victims had also suffered tremendously due to his crimes, with one victim being hospitalized for five days with 13 stitches in her head because of his actions. After the case was postponed multiple times, Tabo was eventually sentenced in May of 2012. He received life imprisonment, which in South Africa is 25 years, for the murder of Numfundo Taihulu, as well as an additional 25 years on a charge of aggravated armed robbery. His attempt to appeal his life sentence would be denied in August of 2012. He would maintain that he never intended to kill Numfondo, that it was just an accident. Before, during an interview with Jared Labishkachny, he was quite cocky as to why he hadn't killed her. 
I'll let you be the judge. I wanted to stay, but I could have killed in Durban. I could have killed her the first night we got to Cape Town. So that was not my intentions at all. Mm. If I wanted to kill her, I could have got her into Ntata, where there's much less people than got her into a bush BNP there, killed mm. her there. So my intentions was never to kill anyone. Mm. My intentions were, with her, was straightforward. I liked her. And mm. things got twisted when whenever they got twisted. I'm not a stupid person. I could have done it in a way that the cops wouldn't even know it was me. The rape happened in a way that I did not know I was doing rape until I left the premises. Mm. Because if I knew I was doing rape, I could have covered myself up by using certain methods so that my fingerprints were not there and etc. However, after he was sentenced and his appeal of the life sentence was denied, he would beg her family for forgiveness. He would also state that he was not a rapist. He wasn't even aware that what he was doing was considered rape until after the fact. In regards to Numfondo's murder and not telling anyone or coming forward sooner, he stated that although it was an accident, he knew he was wanted by the police on other rape charges, so he was terrified that they would not believe him. Although he did not receive any leniency on this sentence, in 2013 he would receive a reduction for the first two sentences. The four times 15 year sentences were reduced to 10 years each, running concurrently with the other sentences. He was then sent to serve out his life sentence in the Drakenstein Correctional Center in Paul. Whilst there, he made friends with the Blackheath taxi killer, Jacob Humphreys. Whilst there, he allegedly turned to God as well as dealt with severe depression, taking antidepressants, sleeping tablets, and seeing a psychologist three times a week. He later stated, I have lost all my friends. I feel alone. It's like crying becomes your friend. A year into his imprisonment, Tabo was writing letters asking for forgiveness from his high-profile friends like Pearl Tuzi and Bonang Mateba amongst others. He wrote, I am sorry for hurting and disappointing my friends but I am disappointed in you so-called friends. Just to set the record straight, many of these so-called friends had no idea of his existence. He would even address Bonang directly stating, I was the one who believed in you from the days of UJ. University of Johannesburg. Through me, you got your dream job. From that fiat to many, I was with you. Tabo was then later moved to Mangoong Prison, a maximum security prison, which also happens to be the second largest private prison in the world. Yes, we actually have private prisons in South Africa, believe it or not. The comment section on my TikTok was shooketh too. So let me take a brief moment to explain to those who are not aware of what a private prison is. Now overseas, private prisons may be a common occurrence, however in South Africa, not as much. In short, there are prisons that are not being run or managed by the state. There are two in South Africa, Mangoong in Bloemfontein, the prison Tabo was in, as well as Kutama Sintamule Correctional Center in Louis Trichard. Both facilities are managed and run by private security companies. The prison Tabo was being kept in is managed by a British security company, GS4. They have a 25-year contract with the South African Department of Correctional Services, which was signed in 2000 and is expected to end in June of 2026. However, after all of this controversy, I wouldn't be surprised if it ended sooner. The Kutama Sentamule contract was awarded to the American company GEO Group, signed in August of 2000, ending in February of 2027. As per a News24 report from last year, the South African government is spending roughly 1 billion rand a year to keep the 6,000 prisoners who are incarcerated within the two prisons. According to an eAfrica report, this cost is at least 5% of the entire correctional services budget for the 25-year period. Side note, it wouldn't be South Africa without some form of corruption. Turns out, shortly after the contracts were negotiated for and signed by the foreign companies, at least three individuals from the Department of Correctional Services who were involved in the negotiations left to seek employment within these prisons. So how do these differ from normal prisons and who gets sent there? Firstly, the designs, which were developed by the international companies who secured the contracts. Whilst being showcased to provide 
higher quality facilities from living conditions and rehabilitation programs to even pool tables. Soon after being built though, the South African Correctional Services realized that they did not run proper feasibility studies and that the cost of maintaining these facilities was far more than anticipated. So in case you were curious, which I'm sure you are, here's a quick peek into the prisons. Some clips which I found in a really fascinating documentary on YouTube from around 15 years ago. Mangong Maximum Security Prison, just outside Bloemfontein, houses almost 3,000 inmates. It's the country's first privately operated prison. It opened its doors in July last year as part of a public-private sector partnership known as APOPS. Group 4 Securitas, a private company, manages the complex consists of six living units. Upstairs are the cells where the inmates sleep, two per room, and all units are equipped with their own ablution facilities. The shower blocks have condom dispensing machines to cater for the sexual health of the inmates. Downstairs is the recreation area, which has a communal television, gym, and pool table. Inmates can use these during leisure time. This 50-bed hospital for inmates is on par with some of the country's best facilities. It has a fully equipped primary health care clinic, as well as a dentist and pharmacist, and other specialized services, like physiotherapy. In the scenic mountains of Luitrichart in Limpopo is the biggest privately operated prison in the world, Kutama Sintumule. Kutama Sintumule prison only opened recently. Because of this, it's not running at capacity, unlike Mangaung prison. It currently houses just over 2,000 inmates. By September this year, it should be running at full capacity of about 3,000. Like Mangaung, the prison is also divided into self-contained living units. It's designed in such a way that the inmates never feel confined. They have space to move around. But a safety net is always there. The private companies say you can't put a price on humane detention. They say the taxpayer is investing in inmates who return to the community, if not entirely rehabilitated, at least better off than had they been in a state prison. So in terms of the prisoners, it's only the high-risk offenders who get sent here, with their allocation to these maximum security prisons allegedly random. Please note the word allegedly. But with all the upgraded facilities, it also appears that the national rules and laws are more like guidelines. Both prisons have been fined hundreds of thousands of rands in penalties for violations of their contracts due to prisoners being allegedly abused and violated. Ruth Hopkins, an amazing journalist, published a book which exposed the cover-up of human rights abuse in Mangaung, whilst the Sunday Independent uncovered similar abuse in Kutama. The terms of the contracts between these international role players and the government are incredibly closely guarded and kept under wraps. This involved prisoners being beaten, forced injected with drugs, kept in isolation for extended periods of time, and more. Perhaps treatment like this does also occur in other prisons, but within these, it is silenced and covered up. Most probably because those profiting from these prisons don't want to lose out. So there you have it, South African private prisons in a nutshell. And so Tabo was off to serve his sentence. And one would believe that that was that, right? Well, given the fact that we seem to just be halfway through this episode, I guess not. On the morning of the 3rd of May 2022, the Department of Correctional Services claimed that an inmate, Tabor Bester, had died as a result of a fire that broke out in his single jail cell at around 3.35am that morning. The initial ruling was suicide. I still remember hearing the news of his passing as his case was actually one that was on my requested case list. I also had followers reach out to me to ask me what my take on the situation was as people already had their suspicions. But after a week or two the news seemed to die down and one would think that that's where it ended, right? Well, no, because in this case nothing is ever what it seems. Fast forward to just two months later, we're in Santon City in Woolworths, which is a high-end grocery store. A man resembling Tabo Besta is spotted. Wait, what? Talk about a dead man walking. But in a more surprising twist, he wasn't shopping alone. He was actually with a well-known woman and a young girl. So although the image was taken in July of 2022, it would only be on the 16th of March 2023 when the image was publicly shared by independent news agency Ground Up. 
Ironically, the photo had not been taken of Tabo, but rather of the woman he was with. The photo had been taken by an individual whose friend was a massive fan of the woman pictured. The woman who took the photo had no idea who he was. All she knew is that it was not this woman's husband. Now you may be wondering, we know that the man in the photo is most likely Tabo, but who is this mystery woman that I keep referring to? Her name is Nandipa Magudamana. She is a well-known socialite doctor and Instagram influencer with over 120,000 followers. And so your next question, I can tell, is how did someone like her cross paths with Tabo, who was incarcerated? In order to understand that and the link, we need to travel back in time a bit. Are you ready? It is alleged, according to Nandipa, that she met Tabo in 2006, while she was studying at Wits University. During this time, he was apparently running a modeling and promotions agency, and she just so happened to be one of the agency's promo girls. After a few years, however, she lost contact with Tabo, and in 2013, she apparently graduated from Wits. With a Bachelor of Health Sciences in Biomedical Sciences, a Bachelor of Medicine, and a Bachelor of Surgery. That that very same year, she married Dr. Mkuseli Magudamana. During this time, Tabo was still in prison, of course. And so the years passed. As Nandipa worked at different hospitals over the years, she allegedly began to reach out to Tabo sometime between 2016 and 2017, whilst he was still in prison, serving his sentence. For some odd reason, she also began to visit him and send money to his prison account. She would later state in an affidavit, whenever he had any concerns and or problems and any issues in prison, I was the only person who would communicate with lawyers to try and resolve these issues. And then in a period of three years, things escalated, like hectically. In February of 2020, Tabo allegedly proposed to her. As I mentioned, she was married, but it is unclear at which point the two decided to go their separate ways. As according to Ground Up News and Records at Home Affairs, the pair are still married. During the time whilst Tabo was serving his sentence in prison, Nandipa, on the other hand, was thriving. She opened up a cosmetic surgery company called Optimum Medical Aesthetic Solutions, and she earned a spot on the Mail and Guardian youth South African list. And it was in 2020 that she completed an affidavit stating that she was engaged to Tabo. In this document, she stated that she sent him multiple payments whilst he was in prison and she also paid just over 7,000 rand for the Damlin cause he was taking. Clearly, Tabo was a great influence on her though because after just a year of being engaged, in May of 2021, Nandipa was suspended from practicing as a doctor by the Health Professions Council of South Africa. The official reason, however, according to reports issued, is that she failed to pay her annual registration fees. Regardless of whether or not she was still registered, her practice kept running. Whether or not she was still involved directly in the day-to-day -day affairs is a case for potential prosecutors to delve into, as practicing without an active license is a criminal offense. Yeah, so there's that. During that year, there are also allegations that the pair founded a new company together, a property renovation company. And in the space of a few months, a bigger plan was put into motion. Which brings us to May 3rd, the day that Tabo was declared dead. And that is where things truly became more bizarre, if you can believe it. So in order to appreciate the true insanity of this case, I'm going to give you a deep dive into not only the days and months that preceded this faked death, but also the weeks that followed. Ready? Probably not, but let's get into it. So whilst the public, the family of his victims, and the victims themselves all believe that Tabo was dutifully serving his time behind bars, he was actually leveling up his scamming and fraud game. Now, many of these scams are still under investigation, so please do note the word allegedly, which will pop up quite often. Ground Up, an amazing independent news agency, and I would argue one of the only authentic and honest ones left in our country, blew the lid on this twisted tale. 
Amongst all they would uncover, they discovered that Tabor was running a multi-million rand business from inside his prison cell. I mean, and he wasn't even shy about it. At the launch of his glamorous media company in 2018, which saw many South African celebrities and big names attend, he appeared on the screen as though he was on a video call. But not as Tabor Besta, of course. His name, as far as everyone was concerned, was Tom Motsepe. So before I showcase the true audacity of Tabo, or Tom, let's delve a little deeper into this Tom character. So Tom Motsepe, as far as he was concerned, was allegedly related to Patrice Motsepe, a well-known businessman in South Africa. Amongst all his accolades, degrees and achievements, Tom also claimed to be affiliated to the one and only 21st Century Fox. Oh wait, and he also lived in New York. But this fancy backstory didn't exactly match the media that he posted to his Twitter account. And honestly, I struggle to believe how people actually fell for this. In one photo, his face has been awkwardly, if I may say so myself, photoshopped onto the body of Michael B. Jordan. In another shot, there is yet another attempt of Photoshop. His website, which is now archived, also sung his praises and qualifications. Prior to this media launch, he also attempted to host a women in media conference that claimed to have guest speakers like Halle Berry and Taraji P. Henson. When they publicly distanced themselves from the affair, the event was cancelled. Okay, so now that you're up to date with Tom, he was featured at this event as he was video calling from New York. The video went a little like this. In a smart suit, laughing at the camera, he smiled to himself as the crowd sang him happy birthday. Now, of course, there is no confirmation that this is indeed Tabo, although it does appear to be quite obvious. And in case you were curious, this event was held on the 13th of June, which just so happened to be the then-incarcerated Tabo's birthday. Crazy coincidence, though. Right? So now that you have an idea of what was keeping Tabo preoccupied during his incarceration, let's skip to the days preceding the escape. Just days before the fire and death, an inmate spoke to Tabo and described him as extremely happy, uncharacteristically so. He would also mention to this inmate that he would be going away soon. Of course, this was a strange statement to make as he was there serving a life sentence. Tabo then also requested to be moved to a solitary cell for his own safety after threats on his life. He complained to prison management that there was a hit on his life after he failed to pay the protection fee to the 26ers gang. Although the request was initially not actioned due to concerns over his mental health state, he would be moved to the isolation cell three days before the incident by a security supervisor who was not even supposed to be on duty that night. Oh, and trust me, there is so much more on that officer, which I'll be sharing shortly. Before Tabo could be placed into the new cell, they had to move the current occupants out. He refused to be moved and there was quite a scene. Eventually though, Tabo was placed into cell 35, a corner isolation cell that was not frequently used due to the fact that it was not in clear view of the CCTV cameras. It was a very specific request. The speed at which this request was also honoured is also kind of strange, since cell transfers apparently took around two weeks to be enacted. The cell, however, was only the first piece in a plan that had been in motion allegedly for months. The second vital piece was a body that was allegedly smuggled into the prison hidden in a large bag that was used to transport food for inmates. It was apparently left for two days inside the kitchen fridges before a senior prison security official was thought to have used a wheelchair to move the body from the kitchen to the isolation unit that Tabor was being held in. To this day, the identity of the body is still unknown. In the early hours of the morning of May 3rd, the body was set alight. During the commotion that followed, it is believed that Tabor walked out of the prison dressed as a prison warder. 
An individual from G4S who was chosen to remain anonymous due to restrictions on his ability to comment made mention of the fact that on CCTV camera footage, one warder is seen entering the unit with a wheelchair, but then a short while later, two warders are seen hurriedly exiting just before the second explosion in the cell. As the prisoners observed the chaos happening around them, it was also noted that the fire extinguisher that was usually on the wall was missing. It's important to note that the isolation cell that Tabo was placed in was also located near an emergency escape door and led to a courtyard, the kitchen and another courtyard with a gate that opened onto the street. After the fire, it is alleged that another senior official entered the cell. Two prisoners who were on cleaning duty were then instructed to clean the cell once the body had been removed. This was done before any officials from the Department of Correctional Services had arrived to inspect, photograph or collect evidence from the scene. When they did arrive, however, an argument ensued as protocol had not been followed. And this argument was overheard by the prisoners. It was, however, the next day when the news was shared that Tabor Bester had committed suicide after a breakup with his girlfriend. And although multiple statements and reports would be made by both prisoners and prison officials that alluded to a different narrative, their cries went unheard and, of course, unrecorded. And I mean, considering it is alleged that Tabor paid 5 million rand to 9 different colleagues over a period of time, one can kind of understand why less appears to have been done. Due to the nature of the death though, an investigation had to commence to understand the strange circumstances. That investigation is still ongoing to this day. After the fire, a prison warder for Mangung sent an email to the Ministry of Justice at the time in June, just a month after the event. But he never received a response. And so in November, he sent another email, a follow-up. He would never receive a reply. And after facing intimidation at the prison he was working at, eventually ended up being transferred away. To this day, the Ministry of Justice maintains that there is no record of these emails ever being received. So just a quick recap on all the things that scream sus in this situation. 1. The hasty transfer to a new cell that just so happens to be out of clear view of CCTV cameras. 2. A prison official with a wheelchair entering the cell before the fire. 3. A senior prison official who was not supposed to be on duty that night just showing up. 4. The suspicious fire and the strong smell of paraffin that the prisoners and fellow warders smelt. 5. Two individuals seen hastily leaving the prison shortly after the fire. So after the fire and the death of Tavo, this is what played out. On the 6th of May, the body that was supposedly Tavo was collected from the morgue by Nandipa, who claimed that she was his customary wife. In South Africa, a customary marriage basically means a marriage that is entered into in line with the traditions and customs of the parties involved. However, she would not be able to enter into a customary marriage with Tabor, as the home affair records still detail that she is legally married to someone else. But even though she claimed and transferred the body to Johannesburg, due to the fact there was a pending investigation, the body was confiscated. On the 19th of May, Nandipa approached the Gauteng High Court and requested that the body of Tabor be returned to her. She had stated that she wanted to complete the cultural burial rites as required. She was not the only one there to collect the body though. A woman who claimed to be Tabo's biological mother, and later this was proven to be true, attempted to claim the body but after a DNA test was denied access. This was due to the fact that her DNA did not match the DNA of the body. Well, I mean, it wouldn't now, would it? But they didn't know that, apparently, back then. There really do appear to be inconsistencies in the reported timeline events of who gained control of the body at which time. Although the Bloomsbreit police station state that after the investigation into the body, it was claimed by the mother, his mother stated that in a letter she received, she was told that the body was being kept in a mortuary in Soweto as of July 2022. The fact of the matter remains that Nandipa was the last one to gain access and control of the body, after the proverbial tug of war.
She ended up not burying it, as she claimed was necessary as part of the cultural rites, but instead she cremated it. In the midst of an open investigation, she got away with this blatant act, removing any source of DNA and evidence. But why all the fuss over a body of a prisoner, you may ask? Well, as the death was due to a fire and the circumstances were not natural, it was automatically flagged as suspicious. This meant further analysis needed to be conducted. And so, of course, the body was needed for that. It was also discovered during the forensic examination and autopsy that the body found in the cell, thought to be Tabor's, was 1.45 meters tall at the time of the autopsy. Tabor, in a police mugshot, however, stood at just around 1.7 meters. I'm not even done there, though. According to the post-mortem report, which was seen personally by the team at Ground Up, the individual being examined was killed by blunt force injury to the head prior to the fire. No signs of smoke were found in the airways, which means no inhalation, which means that the body was dead prior to the fire. The report also noted, Strong smell of accelerant paraffin from the body's trachea and bronchi. The entire body was charred with the hands and face being particularly burnt. Thus, the police docket was finally altered after the autopsy from suicide to murder. Yet still, Nandipo was able to claim that body. Super sus if you ask me. But it would still be so many months until the truth would hit the news. And the public and the country would be in a state of uproar when it was finally confirmed that Tabor Bester had escaped from prison. And faked his own death. So during the time after his death, what exactly was he up to, you may ask? Well, the now infamous shot of him in Woolworths was snapped just two months after his death. Turns out, after the bogus death event, Tabo would continue leading a life of luxury for the next few months. And when I say luxury, I mean luxury. He was living in a 12 million rand exclusive home in Hyde Park, an extremely plush neighborhood in the northern suburbs of Gauteng. The rental of the Hyde Park mansion was 40,000 rand per month and the couple paid a year in advance, so no credit checks or history was even done. However, once the year was up, they were consistently irregular in rental payments and would also end up renovating the property, even though the lease was purely for occupation. After his escape from prison, Tabor also assumed the alias TK Nkwana. He even had a driver's license and ID in this name, although the issued ID number does not even exist in the Home Affairs Registry. With this identity, together with Nandipa, of course, they were allegedly running a scam construction company. With this company, they convinced several individuals to pay millions of rands for projects which they never delivered the goods on. Soon after signing contracts and paying deposits, clients would realize that something was up. There is even a recording from Tabo and a client just weeks before everything made the news this year. All of those who dealt with the company Aaron Properties were introduced to TK by Nandipa. He was already meeting some of these individuals whilst he was in prison and he was pretending to be overseas as Nandipa had told them he was. After his escape though, Nandipa would tell all of these colleagues that her husband had returned back from overseas. Tabo would also use social media accounts that were linked to Nandipa in order to approach individuals who were influential or had a big following. Then he would try to get them on board. He was not shy in the least, meeting clients in broad daylight in busy places. Those who worked under him described him as being hot-headed, especially when asked to clarify budgets and construction schedules by clients. And their life of luxury continued unperturbed until the hit the fan on the 16th of March 2023. Yeah, just under a month ago. That was the day that Ground Up posted the image of the suspected Tabo Besta. And that was when the gig was up. After the news was picked up and shared and pretty much went viral, five days later on the 21st of March, Tabo allegedly with his apparent girlfriend Nandipa Magudumana and her two children disappeared without a trace from their fancy Hyde Park mansion. 
Their departure was so hasty that there was apparently a one and a half million rand watch that was left on their bedside table. And so that brings us to the current moment, where at the end of March 2023, the Department of Correctional Services issued the following statement. It is critical at this stage for Bester to be found. DCS is appealing to the public to assist with any information that may lead to the arrest of Bester to contact the police. Yeah, this all happened last year, DCS were well aware of it, but only now the public are being informed and also asked to help try and find this wanted rapist and killer. And according to the latest news, the gardener and domestic worker who worked for them in their Hyde Park mansion have been reported missing by their respective families, feared to be dead. Footage obtained recently showcases Nandipa, two months prior to Tabo's escape hitting the news, in a conversation regarding a luxury vehicle worth 1.3 million rand for which she defaulted on payments. During the conversation, it is made clear that she is still owing roughly half the amount on the vehicle, but she will not however state the name of the individual who initially entered into the agreement for the car. This vehicle was driven across the border into Zimbabwe and left there. Footage shows her crossing the border back into South Africa on foot, where she walks to a garage and is picked up by another vehicle. If she was planning on using that vehicle in the future, she's unfortunately out of luck. The vehicle was impounded on the other side of the border as it was fitted with fake Zimbabwean number plates belonging to a Toyota. Whilst Border Patrol were investigating the vehicle, the female driver had absconded on foot. Hmm. No one at all has heard from Tabor, but Nandipa, on the other hand, has been in contact with her father. At the end of March, the 29th to be precise, he claimed that she had told him she was on the run, hiding out. She had only called him to inquire about the health of her mother. To this day, her practice remains closed, with staff not being able to reach her or know when she will be back. Although her father may be more than willing to protect his daughter should he know where she may be at this time, the situation with her brother Sigeleni is an entirely different and super strange one. He was the one who attempted to blow the lid on the relationship between herself and Tabo in a Facebook post last year. Nandipa had then obtained a high court interdict against him due to what she deemed to be defamatory statements about her being posted by him online. There are a couple more allegations, ranging from extortion to attempted murder, that the siblings have thrown upon one another. As this is still a developing case and we do not know the truth, I cannot state what indeed the real narrative or chain of events that transpired are. But whether or not her brother demanded a hundred thousand rand from her to keep quiet, as is rumoured, we do know that he ended up spilling the beans. Not that many really listened though. She has really dug herself into a hole. For a married woman having an affair with such a low life as this, she is ashamed to the Sekeleni family. With this country fighting GBV and corruption, we still have monsters like this operating on the outside whilst in prison. I have evidence in the form of recorded phone calls. I'm posting this because two nights ago, a gunman tried and failed to kill me, my wife, and my child. As the good doctor was aware of what might happen, she called my wife to tell her to take the child and go, as she was fully informed by Tabor Bester of his motive to take me out. I am willing to give up my life for the truth. Money is evil. Her brother now wants nothing to do with the ongoing case and claims that himself and his family's life is still in danger. But what about the institutional front? G4S remain adamant that Tabor Bester died in the cell that night and that somehow the Department of Correctional Services have got it all wrong. That being said, they did confirm that they dismissed three employees in relation to their conduct on the day of the fire last year. Two of these individuals were security supervisors and one was in control of the CCTV camera surveillance. These dismissals were issued in September and December of 2022 and January of 2023. Remember when I told you I had the scoop on one of the security officials earlier? Well, here is that interesting piece of information I discovered. 
One of the three prison guards who was fired had posted to Facebook just a few months prior to the escape, boasting about a new vehicle, a VW T-Roc that he had just purchased from Volkswagen. His colleagues would later state that they found it slightly odd how he was able to purchase a vehicle that cost more than half a million rand when he only earned a salary of between 15,000 and 18,000 rand a month. And he didn't have a second job. Well, an official one that is. Multiple sources confirmed that although the man who was a security supervisor was not scheduled to be on duty on the night of the fire, he showed up anyways. He was also the man who was responsible for Tabor Bester being placed in the cell that he was due to security concerns. Hmm, I won't say a word. He, however, was not the only one allegedly getting in good with Tabor, though. Multiple inmates confirmed how Tabor would bankroll the lifestyle of those working in the prison, buying them lunch, sending them e-wallets, expensive gifts, and even loaning them money. So basically, point of the story is that everyone was eating nicely. So I've told you briefly about who Tabor was, but let's delve a little deeper into the mind behind the madness. At the heart of everything, that Tabor is. He is a con man. And con artists, well, the successful ones, that is, often embody three main groups of characteristics. Psychologists and researchers often refer to these as the dark triad of personality traits. For my psychology fundies out there, I'll give you a few seconds to see if you can guess what they are. Okay, did you get them? These are narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. Now, I'm sure you may have heard and even guessed the first two, but perhaps not the last one. Machiavellianism is a personality trait that denotes cunningness, the ability to be manipulative, and a drive to use whatever means possible to gain power. Now, I must state for the record that Tabo Besta has not been diagnosed with any personality disorder to my knowledge at least. However, even in recent interviews, Gerard Labeshkachny has stated that if Tabor was to be diagnosed at some stage with psychopathy, for example, he would not be very surprised. Gerard also happened to interview Tabor many years ago, before he pled guilty to the charges in 2012. That interview was incredibly enlightening, especially if you're someone who's interested in body language and behavior. Here are some brief snippets of the interview. That something like this might happen again? Not really. I, I, I think all these incidents happened... Yes, they happened three times differently. But I feel also that... I'm not somebody that you should worry about leaving a woman in one room with me that I would rape. Murder, I feel that it was just a pure, we fight over a knife, somebody gets stabbed in the process and it was not, if I wanted to stab, I could have killed her in Durban, I could have killed her the first night we got to Cape Town. So that was not my intentions at all. Mm. If I wanted to kill her, I could have got her into Ntata where there's much less people than got into a bush BNP there, killed mm. her there. So my intentions was never to kill anyone. Mm. My intentions were... With her was straightforward, I liked her. And mm. things got twisted when, whenever they got twisted and we had a fight, the knife got out of hand, she got stabbed, I got stabbed in the process. I tried to stop it. And there's no one in, in this world with two rape cases and there's a knife involved and I'm wanted by cops. If I went to the cops and said we had a fight, she got stabbed in the process, no one was gonna believe me. Mm. I read the papers and I feel like they're talking about somebody else, not me. Mm. Wanted to give the people that got hurt in the process also that thing could say, okay, he's in jail and we've got justice. Not responsible for killing her. I'm not a stupid person. I could have done it in a way that the cops wouldn't even know it was me. The rape happened in a way that I did not know I was doing rape until I left the premises. Because if I knew I was doing rape, I could have covered myself up by using certain methods so that my fingerprints were not there and etc. As you heard, there is a lot to read between the lines there. So, like I said, without issuing a diagnosis, because you can't possibly do that without extensive consultation with an individual, 
These are just my personal musings. In my personal opinion, Tabo most definitely showcases an inflated ego and callousness. Not scared to be seen in public after his escape, or even back in the day on CCTV footage when he was conning others. Impulsivity, engaging in dangerous behaviours and overconfidence are all evident within his behaviour too. And of course, pretty self-explanatory. Those who worked under Tabo would also state that he was quick to anger, especially when his ego was threatened in any way or form. And of course, that short fuse led to rash decisions. The way he responded in these situations and the expression of emotional abuse would deeply be linked to his sense of arrogance. If you combine traits like these, along with the fact that Tabo appears to have a higher level of intelligence, it honestly just spells disaster. Gerard Labeshkachny would also say in a later interview, and I quote, He is the kind of person who, if he applied his knowledge and skills in a good way, probably would have been quite successful. I found him to be a smart guy, intelligent, well-spoken. His higher level of intelligence could perhaps explain why he chose to plead guilty to the first two charges of rape and theft. No victims meant no testimony, which meant no displayed emotions, which could potentially sway the judge's decision. Like I said, tactical over emotional. So in my eyes at least, I feel like he pled guilty not for the benefit of his victims, but rather for the benefit of himself. He also demonstrated a complete lack of accountability and responsibility over his actions, not wanting to admit to the murder that he instigated, calling it an accident on many occasions. He would also go on to blame lust as the reason for why he raped the woman whom he only ever intended to rob. And of course, the most prevalent trait within him, in my opinion at least, is his ability to manipulate others. It's evident that that particular trait only grew as the months went on. His behavior from his initial crimes to the most recent ones have only escalated, triggered by different environments. This escalation makes him dangerous. It makes him unpredictable. And perhaps now that you may understand Tabor just a little bit better, we can venture to the question that so many have been asking. Why did Nandipa fall for him? Why did she risk her name, her reputation, her life? Without knowing Nandipa or her side of the story, we can only speculate, and I don't really fancy doing that on many an occasion. But for the purpose of spreading knowledge, I will mention some of the most common factors that exist in play in situations like this. But it's also important to realize that every situation is different, every relationship is different, and so the factors will differ too. Within relationships like this, it is a mixture of characteristics, some that exist within the criminal, taboo in this example, whereas others exist within the woman or the individual that chooses to get involved with them. As we've already discussed some of the main features and characteristics that Tabor displays, we'll move on to Nandipa. Or basically others that find themselves in similar situations. Often the characteristics that are embodied by these individuals range from fantasy or thrill-seeking behaviors, psychological and emotional vulnerability, and often trauma and past experiences that lead these women or men to seek out partners that can either relate to their experiences or who can help them heal. There can also often be many unhealthy attachment issues as well as undealt with emotions at play. Like I previously said though, and I will reiterate once again, until Nandipa's side of the narrative comes to light, one cannot just simply assume and then take those assumptions as facts. This is not mainstream media after all, I'm just saying. At this point, we can only really begin to delve into Tabor's psyche. And at the end of the day, he's the one who's been tried and found as guilty. So, at this current point in time, as I am filming this episode, where do things stand? Honestly, there have been so many breakthroughs, by the time I'm editing this, there could be something new. On an institutional front, at the end of March this year, 2023, the director of Mangaung Correctional Center was fired and a temporary manager was instated. As I mentioned, three officials from the prison have so far been fired. 
On another front, private security company Fidelity ADT have offered a 100,000 rand cash reward for any information that leads to Tabor Bester's arrest. As per a news report I just received to my phone whilst filming, it appears that Tabor Bester and Nandipa are thought to be in Tanzania and according to our Minister of Police, an arrest seems imminent. But I'll believe it when I see it. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a breaking news update. No, really. Honestly, as I was editing this episode, the news came in. It has now been confirmed by the Minister of Justice that Tabo Besta and Nandipa Magudmana were arrested this past Friday, the 7th of April, 2023, along with a Mozambican national in Tanzania. It is alleged that the pair left the country through the Zimbabwean border. The local police followed their black SUV from a hotel they were staying in where they were paying large amounts of cash. They were then stopped less than 10 kilometers away from the border border into Kenya. They had their clothing on them and they were about to make a large cash withdrawal. The pair were also found with multiple passports with different identities but zero stamps in them. They were also going by the names Tommy William Kelly and Martha Patience Mrika Nichini. Between them they will now most likely face charges of breaching immigration laws, aiding and abetting a criminal, defeating the ends of justice, fraud, corruption, murder and a host of others too. According to sources the breakthrough was also aided due to the couple consistently checking social social media to see what was known about their whereabouts, as well as the fact that they were running out of funds. It has also been confirmed that on Saturday the 8th of April, after the couple's arrest, Nandipa's father and three others have also been arrested. It was also revealed on the 9th of April that the police are now looking at Dr. Nandipa, as well as potential accomplices, for the theft of three corpses from Free State Mortuaries. According to the claims, one of the bodies who Nandipa had claimed was her father was found in the river a week later with the identification tag still attached to the toe. The second body is thought to be the body that burnt in the prison that was claimed to be Tabo. But the third body has still not been identified. It is evident the story has many twists and turns, so I'll be sure to keep you updated. Oh, and just a casual side note in case you weren't shocked by anything I've mentioned in this case so far. Not everyone who's heard about this case thinks that Tabo is a villain. No, like, I'm being serious, they really don't. A local DJ had the cheek to praise him and his actions, saying... He was hosting seminars from jail on Zoom. He's a king. That's dope. I wouldn't say he's a notorious criminal. Yeah, so let's just completely forget about the fact where he has traumatized and raped so many women, as well as taken the life of one. For them, their families, and the family of the victim, the wounds have been opened once again, and until he is brought to justice, there is no chance of closure or healing. I'll be sure to keep you updated on this case, most likely via TikTok or Instagram. So if you don't follow me on there already, I suggest you do so. I post a lot of content from daily short crime stories, as well as local myths and folklores, and of course, just my daily musings. So there's a lot of stuff going on. You can find me on both of those platforms at Bella underscore Monsoon. Until next week, stay safe, stay vigilant, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Until next week, my loves. Bye!